Hello and welcome to Advice Worth Keeping. My name is Stacy Tafau, and today I'm sitting down with Cyrus Lamb and Chrisanne Corbett. Cyrus and Chrisanne are both in corporate finance here at KPMG. One of their areas of specialty is helping companies when they're ready to sell, an initiative our national markets team calls What's Your Next Move? To begin, I'd love to have you both share a bit about yourselves, particularly how you got involved in this line of work and what keeps you excited about it. Thanks, Stacy. This is Chrisanne Corbett. I've been with the firm for 20 plus years. I'm based in Chicago. I wear two hats at KPMG. I lead our diversified industrials team focused on very niche technical verticals within the broader industrials market, like test and measurement, flow control, HVAC, engineered components. I also co-lead our private equity coverage team. I'm out in the market maintaining relationships with private equity groups so that when we go to market with our transactions, that we know the best groups to approach, their behavior, how do they pay, so we can get our clients in front of the best private equity buyers out there. I'm excited to be here with you today and to share the conversation with Cyrus. Thanks, Chrisanne. Everyone, my name is Cyrus Lam. I'm a managing director within KPMG's corporate finance team. I'm located in our New York office and I've been with KPMG for about 26 years. Coincidentally, and something Chrisanne refused to mention in her introduction is that we both joined pretty much at the same time, <laughs> just in very different countries. And we've been together at KPMG for a very, very long period of time. By way of coverage, I focus on the TMT sector and I'm the global co-head of the technology, media and telecom for our corporate finance team. Within TMT, my focus areas are on tech-enabled services and technology services companies. Very excited to be on this podcast and look forward to the next 30, 45 minutes of discussion. Thanks for sharing. While you've both worked with some pretty big companies, the thrust of our conversation today is going to center on mid-market companies, generally those with revenue falling under the $3 billion range. These firms are often described as the bread and butter of the U.S. economy because of the number of jobs they create and the fact that they are the fastest growing segment of any industry in terms of revenue. So as we jump in, our conversation is really going to address what mid-market business owners should be thinking about as they get ready to sell their business. Cyrus, on this first question, perhaps I can begin with you, and then Chrisanne, you can jump in and add your perspective as well. So here goes. What are the top things a company needs to do before they are ready to sell? That's a great question. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned, Stacey, being focused on the middle market, that's really important. And and it's important for our listeners to know that because our corporate finance team and the team that Chrisanne and I work in, and in fact, our global corporate finance practice is solely focused on the middle market. And what that means is we do transactions with an enterprise value anywhere from 50 million at the low end to four, 500 million at the high end. And that squarely falls within the range of the lower end of the middle market. And, And so a lot of the companies that we deal with are either privately owned by private equity, or they are privately owned and they are family-owned businesses or founder-owned businesses. And typically, the founder-owned and family-owned companies are very focused on delivering excellent customer value and excellent customer relationships and delighting their customers. They're not really that focused on transacting their business. And so when it comes to a sale, sometimes they get caught offside. Your question is quite prescient in that nature. The three things that we guide folks to do really in terms of their business is getting their house in order, 
What that means, it pretty much means what it says on the cover, if you like. Making sure that they have identified all of the things that they need to fix in their business, making sure that they have things like customer contracts signed. It's uh, ridiculous sometimes when we go into companies and we find that they've had a customer relationship and one of their most meaningful customers has been with them for 20, 25 years, but the contract expired five years ago and no one actually bothered renewing it. The customer's delighted, they're still paying, but there's no actual contract. The buyer will probably want that. So go through your business, make sure that your house is in order to the extent you need to get an audit done, get that audit done and talk to advisors. They will tell you what you'll need to do. Make sure that you're not trying to get this done in a very short time frame. It typically takes anywhere from four to six months to get a sale process completed, sometimes even longer. And so it takes time and that depends very much on how prepared you are. So the first thing is getting your house in order. The second point that I would like to make is identify the key themes and value drivers in your business. If you're a software company or if you're a tech-enabled services company, one of the key themes might be that you have a lot of recurring revenue. That's great. Make sure that you've done all of the analysis to identify what that is and how important that is to you and, and how the recurrence of that revenue underpins the forecasted projections that you're putting out there. That's going to be a great value driver to think about. It's not going to be the same for every business. Again, talk to your advisors. Think about your business in terms of what keeps you up at night and see how you can address those concerns or more importantly what makes you sleep well at night and make sure that you're highlighting those plus points to the buyer audience and the third is really unpacking problem areas what i mean by that is identify any concerns in your business i gave you an example earlier of not having contract signed that's a problem area you want to fix that early another problem area might come up because you might do what is called a quality of earnings analysis on your business this is something that your financial advisor would do they will actually look at your numbers side by side compare the business year over year over year and tell you where there might be adjustments, where there might be issues and buyer pushback. And you want to address those upfront. You want to make sure that you understand what those issues are and you want to really strike at the heart of those. So those are the three things from my perspective. I'm sure there's others. And Chrisanne, I'd love for you to give your thoughts on this. Yes, I'd like to add just a couple points to what Cyrus just mentioned. One thing that we do see with a lot of privately held second, third generation businesses is that they're usually looking to exit the business and sometimes they haven't really thought about the succession planning. They just know they might want to sell and what we say to them is who's going to take over for you. That's something that they have to have a plan for, whether if it, is there someone already in the company they can step up to that CEO, president position, if that's the position, or if they're a chairman. We just have to make sure there's a smooth succession in place when the transaction occurs, or if not, that there's a plan for a smooth transition. It is important to buyers, and one thing they do look at quite heavily is, does that owner do a lot of the relationships, sales relationships, customer relationships, things like that reside with that owner? So you have to really make sure you flush that out and understand the value proposition, so what the next buyer is going to get when they purchase the company. And then the other thing I would add is, that the buyer, when they buy the company, they're also buying the future of the company. And you want to make sure that your client can clearly articulate the opportunities for that buyer when they own the company. They don't have to be opportunities that the current owner is necessarily capitalizing on. At the current time, sometimes, you know, they focus on a few areas that they're doing very well, but they've thought of a lot of opportunities for growth. So just make sure that that's well laid out and thought of because the buyer is getting the future of the company. We've talked a lot about getting your business and your company in the right shape. But one of the things that a lot of founder-owned businesses and family-owned businesses forget is that you have to get your own personal finances in a good shape as well. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of value that is tied up in the company that you own. 
people are generally looking to transition a business ownership when they reach a certain age or if their children aren't interested in running the business. And you definitely want to make it your priority to talk to your wealth advisor and talk to your tax attorneys to structure any holdings that you might have so that you're not unnecessarily penalized when you eventually do sell the business. Chrisanne, I have a follow-up question that I would like for you to address. I've heard you speak about how important it is for business owners to be mentally prepared when it comes to selling their company. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Look, it's like I mentioned before, a second, third, fourth generation business or a privately held first generation that they've started and grown for 20, 30 years. This has become almost like a second family to many of these owners. It is a very big mental hurdle to find yourself ready to sell the business to some buyer that at the time they don't know who that may be. So we always make sure that they're mentally ready to do it. That also, it takes, as Cyrus probably can attest to this, it takes a lot of work. This is a five to six month process. The advisors take a lot of that work off the plate for the seller, but it is still a good amount of work and it mentally it's a tough process to go through. So you have to make sure that you're ready to sell your company. And there's no guarantees we can get to the finish line and the owner, the company can change their mind. They can change up to the day they're signing on the dotted line, but you want to have a good feel that they're ready for this next chapter. One of the things I've heard you both talk about is the importance of the role of story in preparing for a liquidity event. And this is a concept that I'm intrigued by. Can one of you flesh out some of the ideas that could help a business owner as they begin to craft a story? I know that this is a nuanced topic, but perhaps you could give our listeners a 30,000 foot overview. So Stacey, that's a great question. It's surprising how often people forget to focus on building that story. And to a large extent, it's what Chrisanne was talking about when she talked about preparation. It's really making sure that your buyers understand what the future of your business entails and how good that business can be going forward. No one's buying a business looking in the rearview mirror. They're checking to make sure that the rearview mirror gives them the comfort that the business has done what it says it has done, but it's really the future that drives the value. And what the future is, is how you build and craft that story. So a couple of suggestions. This is going to be different for each business, but it's really thinking about your competitive positioning. Are you number one or number two in the market? Thinking about your projected growth. Is that going to taper off after many years of strong growth? Or is that suddenly going to spike up? And you've got to explain why that change is happening. You've got to look at your revenue and your customers and look at all of the metrics around revenue retention and customer retention. Increasingly, what we're finding is that you can craft a good value story, but if you don't have the data to back it up, either through the quality of earnings or either by doing additional analytics on your business, it's going to fall apart when the buyers dig into it. So you definitely want to make sure that any story that you put out there has solid analytics and solid data backing it up. So we talked about competitive positioning, projected growth, customer retention. A few of the other things that you could think about is really what is the investment and uh, infrastructure that you've already put in place that is going to allow the business to grow going forward. That's another area that buyers tend to focus on. They want to know if you're selling at the peak and you are basically taking as much cash out of the business as possible, or have you been investing in the business along the way to make sure that when they own the company, it's not going to require a meaningful infrastructure investment or capital expense. The other parts of the value story include things like looking at the EBITDA 
everyone nowadays has an adjusted EBITDA and some sellers have pro forma EBITDAs as well, which takes it even one step further. In very simple terms, what that is, is looking at the financials of the business, looking at the profits of the company and adjusting it for one-time expenses. And it's important that you do that in a consistent, but also a reasonable way. We've seen some of these adjustments take a life of their own, and that's not a way to create value. A way to create value is to talk about the growth in the business and the customers and the positioning and the investments that you've made. It's not by just changing the EBITDA for one-time investments that may or may not recur in the future. The last thing that I would say in terms of crafting the story, which a lot of fellas forget about, is talking about why they are looking to do a transaction. And sometimes it's just as simple as, hey, I'm 65 years old and I want to exit the business and my kids don't want to be part of this and I need to cash this out and that's fine. Sometimes it's I'm a 35-year-old entrepreneur and I've run this for five years and I've taken it as far as I can go, but I now need to take it to the next level and I need a partner to help me do that. Both of those are absolutely fine. It's just making sure that you've really thought, introspected, and clarified in your own mind why you're doing the transaction. Two things I would add is that I think that um, when we sit down with owners, we always ask, what are the opportunities you've missed or what haven't you done well? And everyone you can put together an offering memorandum, a SIM, that says everything that's great about the company. It's also good to highlight the things that maybe you haven't done well or missed opportunities not to say it's a weakness of the company, but here's things we could have done better, and it highlights a future opportunity for the next buyer. Here's what we've done. Maybe we didn't do this that well, but this is what can be done in the future. We should always look at these missed opportunities or things that the company didn't do very well because buyers always like to see that there's still opportunity with the business going forward. I think those are sometimes the most exciting opportunities. If everything is perfect, going well, Price is probably going to be the most differentiating factor. If buyers see potential opportunities where they can make a difference on the company, whether it's growing revenue faster, improving the bottom line, adding salespeople, those are all opportunities that get buyers excited and can help actually increase the valuation. So it's always important to look at it from that angle as well. I'd imagine that you've worked with companies where there are perhaps some elements of their stories that aren't the most favorable, things that, as you said previously, are keeping them up at night. How do you explain these when they come up? Well, I think it really depends on what it is. And look, a lot of owners are like, oh, I should have, you know, when they start this process and they really go through it and looking back and looking forward, I mean, we've had a lot of owners that said, wow, maybe I should have done this or I should have done that. They get into the management presentations with potential buyers and they hear all these questions. Sometimes our clients can really beat themselves up. We're like, you've done a great job. You know, you have to look at all the positives you've done. We always firmly believe if there's any issues in the company, get them out on the table. Any buyers are going to dig in and figure them out. Sometimes it might be where there's customer concentration. You wouldn't want to hide that. You'd want to get that right out there. If you've got two customers that are 45% of the revenue, you've got to highlight that. You've got to let people know that. That's not something you wait for them to get into meeting with your client and that comes out. Or if they lost a big customer but they quickly replaced it. Or if the owner says, I hold all the customer relationships, if I leave, this could be a big issue for the next buyer. You have to get all that out and have solutions to these problems. 
To reiterate one point, the key is in a sale process is no surprises, unless they're good surprises, I should say. But even that, you don't want to have some crazy good surprise come out of the woodwork that you had no clue about, because that's not the way you want people to perceive how you run your business. But you definitely don't want to have a negative surprise. And really, that's the key. It's not like every business has, has to be perfect. It's just to make sure that if there are blemishes in the business, if there are issues that you've come across, make sure you know what they are, make sure you understand and can explain how you're addressing them and make sure that you're completely transparent with your advisors so that they can be transparent with the buyers and everyone feels good about moving forward with that sale or moving forward with that purchase. I agree with Cyrus. We say it's controlling the narrative. We should tell the story, get it all out there, because if something comes up and the buyer finds it out or figures it out, we've lost control of the narrative and then we're in a defensive position and we want everything to be out there. And if there are new developments along the way, you have to relay that information and get it out there. As Cyrus said, negative surprises, especially if they're things we've known about or should have been disclosed, those are things that can derail a process. When I've heard you speak before, you've talked about how value is a hugely important aspect of doing transactions. Can you speak to how an owner can begin to identify the value of their business? And then as a part two to that question, I'd imagine that there are some things that increase valuations. Can you speak to that as well? Happy to happy to give you some thoughts on that. So in terms of identifying value, it's primarily understanding what potential buyers are going to be willing to pay for your business. And there's a difference between value and price in this. And I always say this to my clients. I mean, you can value a business theoretically using a discounted cash flow approach or using some sort of market-based multiple approach. That's kind of meaningless if there's no one willing to pay that value and pay the price for that business. And so you've got to think about value in terms of what the business is worth, but also what it's worth to someone else. And that can go both ways. That can push the price up and it can also push the price down. So let me give you an example for both. If there is a business that has all the attributes that a buyer is looking for, but there are five buyers that are exceedingly interested in buying that company or buying your business, I should say, you're gonna find that at some stage, the valuation or the price that one buyer is gonna be willing to pay is going to be higher than everyone else. And that may be just because that buyer wants the business or wants to be in your space or wants your technology or whatever the argument is, they're gonna be willing to pay a price that is not justifiable by any sort of model or any sort of multiple, and that's fine. That's the purpose of running a process. On the other hand, you might have a valuation theoretical in your mind that is at a certain level, but if there are no buyers or if there's just one buyer willing to do the transaction for whatever reason, that unfortunately is now the price for the business. You've got to think about value and think about price in those terms. But in terms of coming up with the valuation, my suggestion would be talk to advisors, talk to people like Chrisanne and myself, talk to other people outside of KPMG, and just understand what other buyers have paid for businesses that are similar to yours. And it's pretty easy to come up with that range. It'll always be a range. It's never going to be a firm number, at least initially. And it's pretty easy to come up with that range for most businesses that are growing, that have profits, that have EBITDA. And that's what I would recommend you do. 
In terms of influencing the value, a lot of sellers will try and influence what buyers are willing to pay for a business by making a few cosmetic tweaks in a business. The reality is, once you're in a sale process, it's very difficult to change the fundamentals of a business. So for example, if you've lost a customer, it's very difficult to go out and change that within the four to six months that your process is going to be running. And so the way I think about value and increasing value is you should always have that at the top of your mind. Every morning when you wake up as a shareholder of a privately owned company, you should be thinking, what can I do today to make sure that my customers are delighted and my my business is running really well, and what can I do today to increase value? And if you think like that programmatically, and what I mean by that is every day, systematically, what you will end up doing is you will end up making good decisions for the longevity of the business and for the valuation of the business. So let's use an example because that's the best way to bring this to life. In technology, you might have the ability to generate significant revenue by reselling software, and that could lead to meaningful top-line growth. But the reality is that is transient. It's not something that's going to happen year over year. It's going to happen at a lower margin because you're really not adding any intellectual property or any value to that transaction. And so when a buyer comes in, yes, they're going to see a bigger business, but they're also going to see the fact that that revenue may or may not recur going forward. On the other hand, you might have the opportunity to build more of regular occurring relationship with your customers, and that might happen at a lower dollar value amount for the revenue. And that's absolutely fine because when the buyer sees that, he or she is going to know that revenue is going to recur year over year over year, and that to them is way more valuable than a one-time big hit in the business. So that's what I mean by thinking about creating value every day. Couple of other points, focus on your KPIs. Know what are the three or four or 10 factors that you are really focused on and make sure that you're tracking those KPIs month over month, sometimes week over week, and make sure that you're being diligent about that and consistent about that. And last thing that I would say is start talking to your advisors or whoever you trust in the market sooner rather than later. That could be your lawyers, that could be your wealth advisor, that could be your investment bankers, that could be your accountants. Anyone that you trust in a professional capacity should be able to guide you through a process like this. Yeah, and I would add to that just basics that a lot of these business owners get approached from private equity groups or from a potential strategic buyer, and they only talk to one group, and sometimes it breaks down, and then maybe they'll hire an advisor. I think in terms of increasing the value, you need to run a process, which gets some type of advisor in there. You don't have to run a broad process. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and every buyer is going to look at a company differently because the buyers can each bring different things to the table. We're always amazed when we run processes. As Cyrus says, we get a range of value from all these buyers. These ranges can vary pretty widely. And if you don't talk to more than one buyer, you're just not going to know the true value of your business. Unless some buyer comes in and puts an above market valuation on the table, as Cyrus said, we can see what other things are trading at. If they want to come in and put an above market price down just to keep it exclusive and not go talk to other potential buyers, we do see that happening in this market. But these valuations are very high for something like that to happen. So one of the basic things to maximize valuation is to have a good process and push buyers to put the best value on the table. And a competitive process is what really brings out the highest valuation. We always tell the potential client, this is a big up in your life, make sure you've got the right advice and that the buyers understand it's a very competitive process and they need to be on their best behavior and put their best valuation down. One buyer might have a lot of sales channels where they control a lot of the products through their channels. 
where another buyer might not be able to do that immediately. We could see a difference in their valuation. One buyer might be looking at it from, like Cyrus said, from a pure technology standpoint, where another buyer might be looking at it for a different reason. All of these can cause different valuations. So it's good to talk to different group of buyers, both private equity and strategic. We always tell clients, get all your options on the table. Thank you. This is fantastic insight. We've touched on the role of story and valuation, and I'd like to pivot now and talk a bit about timeline. Suppose one of our listeners has a company they're looking to sell. What can you tell them about the process from a timing perspective? It's a four to six month process. It can go a little longer. Rarely does it go shorter than four months. You have to be prepared. We tell our clients never shortchange the preparation phase. And Cyrus and I both mentioned this that if you don't get everything on the table, understand it, both looking back, what are the issues, what have you done to address them, just make sure you've laid out the company as best as possible, and also looking forward. You want to make sure you lay out all the potential opportunities that either the client's currently doing or not doing and can be a potential opportunity for the next buyer. The preparation phase is four to six weeks. If anyone tells you you're going to do it under four weeks, you're rushing it and you might miss things. And this could become disruptive later on in the process. The preparation phase is gathering information and putting together a confidential information memorandum that is gonna be what is gonna be read in the market by potential buyers after signing a non-disclosure agreement. That first phase, the client's heavily involved, giving all that information to their banker, crafting the story, both looking back and looking forward. Then once the banker, you go to market, you start contacting potential buyers, that's less time sink for the client. That's usually a four to five week phase. So you're up to probably 10 to 12 weeks at this point. And then after the bids are due, they're always arranged, as Cyrus said, you determine who you want to invite in for a meeting to meet the buyer. They travel to meet at the buyer location, either on-site, off-site. And this is really the first time that the client is going to sit down across the table from these potential buyers and the client and their team do a presentation on the company. This can take one to two weeks, depending on how many groups you invite in. It's typically half a day. And then after that starts the heavy diligence phase. In this market, what we're seeing is that people are not granting exclusivity to buyers. They're being required to do a lot of work, a lot of diligence work, both on the financial, on the market side, before granting any or no exclusivity at all. I think that the exclusivity phase, if it is granted, typically the banker and the client feel very confident that whichever buyer they're going to go with, that they can get to the finish line. Even like three years ago, people were giving up to 60 days of exclusivity. You just do not see that in this market anymore. And you're also negotiating a stock purchase agreement along with the legal counsel. That's all done in that last diligence phase. This typically takes, like we said, depending on the process, you're running four to six months. That's a great summary of the process. I think one point that I would love to leave our listeners with, there is a saying in M&A practices that time kills all deals. And that is so true. The longer a process takes and the longer you are in market with a transaction talking to buyers, the more distracted you will be as a seller and as a management team. And it is inevitable that the business will underperform during that time. And so you want to have that time as short as possible Keep buyers' feet to the fire as much as possible and make sure that you've spent enough time in the upfront preparation phase because if you fail to prepare, as the old saying goes, prepare to fail. 
that is 100% true as it relates to transactions and M&A. Based on your experience working with business owners, what surprises them most about the sale process? So I think some of the biggest surprises is that a lot of our clients kind of have a preconceived notion of who's probably best to buy their business. Some of our clients are, there's no way we're going to talk to private equity. That usually tends to be the story we hear all the time when they sit because they see what they read in the newspapers or what they hear on the news. And the private equity market, it's much more diverse, much larger. So I think what surprises them a lot is just some preconceived notions. And then when they meet at the management meetings and they sit down across the table from different potential buyers, I think a lot of times they're like surprised, like, wow, I really like this group. Or I really thought we absolutely had to have a strategic buyer. And no, I don't think that that's necessarily the best way to go. I think we feel a really good fit or vice versa. We really want to go to private equity, roll back in, roll back some of our proceeds, still maybe maintain some ownership, but they might meet some great strategic buyer that offers them a great price, shows what great plans, how they can really grow the company very quickly. So a lot of times we have to work hard with them to say, let us introduce you to all of your options. And then you have a chance to meet them, and then you can make your decision versus sitting at the beginning of the process and saying, I only want to talk to this type of buyer. What really surprises me, in addition to what Chrisanne has said, especially when we're dealing with families or founders, is the emotion that is involved in a transaction. Very often our sellers will describe their company as their child. They view these businesses as living entities, and they want these businesses to go to places where they will be highly successful and where their employees will get taken care of. And after working for 20 years, growing this business, it is a very emotional subject. And so be prepared for that, mentally prepare for that, talk to your family about this transaction and get ready for that decision. And then the last thing that I'd say is this is a very stressful process and you definitely want to be prepared for that mentally. Have the right advisor, get the right advice, listen to the advice, and hopefully that makes it slightly less stressful from a seller's point of view. And don't take it too personally. We tell them you're going to get tons of questions through the process. Sometimes you get the same question 20 times. Don't take it personally. Everyone's doing their diligence. Just because they're asking why you didn't do something doesn't mean they're being critical. They're just trying to understand the opportunity. Some of our clients, they beat themselves up. We should have done this. Why didn't we do that? And we're like, you have a ton of interest in your company. You've done everything well. And I think, as Cyrus mentioned, the stress of the process. We just say, don't take it too personally. It is a business transaction. It's hard to keep the emotion out, but we try to help balance that throughout the transaction. As a last question, for listeners who might be considering a sell, can you speak to which expectations or responsibilities rest on the business owner and which of those rest on the transaction team? A great deal of the responsibility rests with the transaction team. That's their job. It's their job to guide them. This is our daily life. This is what we do best. So we're there to guide them. I would say a good 75% rests on the transaction team maybe 25 to 30% is going to be on the client. Sometimes it just depends how available the information is. It's really up to the job of the advisor, as Cyrus mentioned before, to let the client keep running their business. That's going to be their main job during the process. There are going to be breaks when we need them involved, but it's very important for them to continue operations. We don't want things to fall off because they're very distracted by the process. That being said, there is some distraction, so we try to minimize it. 
the main things that the clients are involved in is the upfront preparation, providing all the information so the banker can put all the materials together. It's handing that, having calls with their advisor to make sure it looks good, reviewing all materials. The other big phase comes in the management meeting phase. As I said, that can be one to two weeks. That is probably the biggest chunk of time. They're carving out half a day, maybe the night before a dinner to meet the potential buyers. That is a very time intensive. That's probably two weeks of where their schedules are pretty disrupted. And then during the diligence phase, they are going to be involved answering questions. The banker tries to handle all those, but a lot of times we have to get our client involved, maybe get them on phone calls, or buyers want to come back and visit. But really the burden is on the banker to bear a great load of getting the transaction done. I'd agree with that. I think it is really on your advisory team to make sure that you as an owner are able to focus on running the business. If you get distracted, if you get too involved in the process, if you're now suddenly talking to the buyer directly, it is going to distract you. And unfortunately, that potentially could disrupt the business. As soon as there's anything that goes wrong with the business, buyers tend to take a deep breath and pause. It's not like they're going to accelerate the process at that stage. So the best thing you could do is run your company, make sure that your customers are delighted, make sure that you're hitting, if not exceeding, the numbers that we've put out in front of a buyer audience. And overall, stay very focused on what it is that makes your business great. Going back to what we talked about previously, you know, it's making sure that your value story is really well addressed, making sure that your customers are happy, making sure that your financials are hit. It's really going back to that. That's really what your focus should be as a shareholder and as a seller of a business. Cyrus and Chrisanne, it's been great having you on Advice Worth Keeping. You've provided a brilliant overview of this topic, and we're looking forward to having you join us again as we tackle the next set of considerations for mid-market business owners as they're wondering, what's my next move?